At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there. I'm Chuck Todd, and this is the Chuck Todd Cast. So for the third time, former President Trump has been indicted, further cementing his place in American history. We're going to spend plenty of time on Donald Trump and the upcoming episodes. But honestly, we wanted to take things in a slightly different direction today and focus on some other contested historical Americans. Today, we're going to talk about J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, center of this summer's Christopher Nolan blockbuster. So joining me today is Kyber. He's author of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And by the way, in case you know, Kai Bird is pretty uh, prolific himself. He's also the author of another biography of another contested American, Jimmy Carter, with his 2021 book, The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. So I thought, you know what? This would be a a fun conversation uh, to have with Mr. Bird. Kai, welcome to the podcast. Well, Chuck, thank you for having me. They are both very interesting personalities in American history. They are, and I just look. I I uh, was talking to you before, so I I um for a variety of reasons. I'm sorry I didn't read American Prometheus when it came out. Uh, I'm not going to make an excuse, but I've I've gone backwards. I've seen the movie, and then was it was I wanted to say, all right, what got left out? What did what what was? And, <laughs> I think what was and we talked about this in our in the conversation we had uh, after the screening up in New York. I think what was remarkable here is he just chose to leave out certain things of the book, but he didn't conflate a thing, did he, uh, Christopher Nolan? Nolan is just amazing. He, when I read that screenplay, I was just blown away by how accurate it was, how adeptly he touched all the sort of major keystones of Oppenheimer's life so that you really get a sense of who the man was. He's a very complicated figure. And, you know, I thought Nolan from Hollywood, you know, the most that they could do would be a slice of the book, a little slice of life. That's what I assumed it would be. Most of that usually is in these biopics. It's usually one moment that you then extrapolate out, right? Right. Right. But he does the whole life it, and it's straight out of the book. And of course, he leaves many things out like you suggested. But what he leaves in is very nuanced. There's nothing factually wrong. There are you know, conversations between Einstein and Oppenheimer that are obviously imagined, mm-hmm. but they're not improbable conversations. So uh, I just I, I, I'm a very lucky biographer. Yeah, no, because there's plenty of people who have seen great biographies. I don't want to say ruined by the movie, but kind of get, you know, messed up a little bit or make it sort of confuse uh, what a book was supposed to be about. What I found interesting about your book, Kai, and I've done this, I've done two books. It's hard. It's (laughs) very hard. (laughs) And what I found, what I find remarkable about your, about Oppenheimer is, you know, there's a lot of times you read a biography and you're like, Hey, I can't wait till they tackle it this way. You know, the next time, like some people you're like, Hey, we need, we need to go at this person again. 
I feel like this is a this is one of those biographies. It's done. There's like you know because it's remarkable how much public information you ended up getting. Whether it was the FBI wiretaps, the FBI files, right? I, the transcripts of these wiretaps, the the security meeting itself. I mean, the firsthand sourcing you were able to ha- get, and I assume that was your co-author who who got a lot of that stuff. Um, in some ways, was almost overwhelming, was it not? It, it was. It was. Now, I, you know, there's always going to be new things to learn. That's what the historical. I know. I don't want to say nobody about, <laughs> but you have. I, I, it's we, hard to see what is left. Yeah, yeah. No, when I, you know, my co-author, Marty Sherwin, who alas passed away at the age of 84 in October of 21, just two weeks after learning that Christopher Nolan was going to be doing the movie. So it's very sad that he's not with us to enjoy this resurrection of the book, but Marty started this biography in 1980 and uh, signed a contract with Alfred Knopf. And he was, you know, he's, he was a brilliant historian of the cold war at Tufts university. He spent the next 20 years just researching and he had accumulated 50,000 pages of archival documents and interviewed 150 of Oppenheimer's key students and colleagues at Los Alamos and relatives. And it's just, it's an astounding piece of research. And then he came to me and he didn't really have writer's block. He just, he had biographer's disease, which is in the business. It's what happens to biographers when they can't stop researching. They're so in love with the research and they can't start to write. Because they believe there's always one more. Do you more call it biographer's one disease, one. or or do you now call it Robert Caro disease? <laughs> <laughs> and we love. I'm, right. We're all hoping Robert Caro does it. You know, finish, please, Robert. Finish. Sorry. Volume right. five. Volume yes. five. Yes. Exactly. We're gonna get to Vietnam someday. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, no, this happens a lot with biographers. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, biography is the best vehicle for conveying history, mm-hmm. but it's also a obsessive one for the biographer because it's a, about a human being. And there's always, of course, some one more fact to learn, one more mystery to solve because human beings are just layers upon layers of complexity. Could you do a biography on somebody you didn't like? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, my new project, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of that, is uh, a biography of Roy Cohn. Oh, oh, we should talk. <laughs> I've got, and, I've got, look, and, so Roy, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sitting what you did with Oppenheimer. I'm, I'm, uh, I can't wait. Um, I, I think <laughs> I, I, I call, he's a founding father of Donald Trump, in my opinion. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Or the Donald Godfather. Trump wouldn't, wouldn't be with mm-hmm. us without what Roy Cohn taught him, how to deal with the press, how to double down, how to never apologize, how to um, bluster your way through public life. And uh, it's a great, colorful story. Let me ask you this about Roy Cohn. A lot of people have tried to tackle it, and it's never quite broken through the way I think it should. Why do you think that's been the case? Well, as I'm learning now in the research phase, he destroyed everything. He burned all his papers. There is no yeah. private archive. 
Uh, he died of AIDS in 1986 in the closet, denying that he had AIDS, denying that he was gay. And many of his friends and colleagues are gone now. And it's a tough subject for a lawyer who, you know, was very public, and yet he sort of practices law over the telephone. <laughs> so No, he kept no records, right? And no whatever records. records were gone, yeah. 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 So going back to Oppenheim, um, so when you were tackling this biography, is there stuff you left out that you regret? Well, nothing that Marty and I regretted. I mean, it's a long biography. It's over 700 it is, pages. But, you you know, it's organized well. It didn't – it moved. You did a good job with it. It moved. I, I was – it was overwhelming at first. I thought it would be, yeah. and it wasn't. It, it moved. Yeah, well, we we focused on the man. It's chronologically written. And Marty, uh, you know, when he recruited me in 20 years into the project – uh, he came to me, and he was a very funny guy. He, with a wry sense of humor, he he said, "Kai, if you don't join me on this project, my gravestone is going to read he took it with him." <laughs> <laughs> and then when I started, you know, he warned, you know, when I came aboard, oh, we still have more research gaps, but uh, I don't know enough about the 1930s. Well, every few months he would call me up very excited and say, Kai, I found another box of archival documents in my attic. <laughs> He'd forgotten about stuff that he had done. And it turns out, you know, I started to write chapter one, the childhood and, and uh, turned it over to him. And he start that stimulated him to start to write. And so it turned into a great collaboration and he knew the material backwards and forwards. And, and of course we had to leave a lot out. Mm -hmm. um it's it, it's just a very complicated story so there's not a lot of this is a biography of a quantum physicist but let me tell you there's not a lot of physics in this book. that's what i think that's what i thought you know it's funny i think that that's probably you know what i assumed there'd be more of and while i actually think you had just enough physics to make it to, you had to have some physics in the book, you know, yeah. um, but I thought I'd, you know, I'd love to ask a physicist this, but I felt like you did enough physics so that the physicists didn't think you were stupid. Right. But not enough where you overwhelmed <laughs> people like me who didn't know enough about the physics. You know? Right. That was our goal. That was our goal. At one point early in, in the writing, Marty turned to me and he said, you know, you and I wouldn't be spending all these years working on this biography, if it was just a, a story about the father of the atomic bomb, if it was just a story about the Manhattan Project and the building of the bomb, what really, for Marty and for me, gave the story an arc is, you know, that Oppenheimer was celebrated in 1945 as America's greatest scientist. Right. And then nine years later, he's brought down in this Shakespearean tragedy of a kangaroo court and publicly humiliated. And that's what makes the story so interesting. Why, how did this happen? And what does that say about us and about America and about Oppenheimer? How did It's this... not history, Kai. That's today. <laughs> right. That's what that's... makes – I really believe that's why I flew through your book right now is it felt very familiar. Yeah. Alas, it's uh, very relevant to our times today. 
And when you think about it, it's just, you know, Donald Trump and his brand of politics comes straight out of McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. It's it has its roots there, and the seeds of Trump politics were planted back then. And they hey, they have uh, a common denominator in the subject you're working on right now, and Mr. Cohn. That's I mean, right, exactly. Accident. Yeah, Cohn was chief counsel to Joe McCarthy in, in his twenties, and uh, then moves back to New York, and in 1973 becomes the lawyer for one. Donald Trump. <laughs> so uh, it's a direct relationship. But, you know, it, I, my, I try, I'm an optimist. I try to look at America and I say, well, you know, we've gone through these periods of craziness and no nothingism and this, this sort of anti intellectual populism. We did it. In, in the 19th century, we did it in the Red Scare after World War One. We we did it again in the early 50s, and we're doing it again now. And it's it's strange, but in American history, there are a lot of people, our citizenry, who have a distrust for science, a distrust of intellectuals, and a distrust of big government, and. Yet we're a society drenched in science and technology. And so. No, we're a contradiction. We love the advancements. And at the same time, we think, you know, we're, we're, we, we can't believe it's happening, right? Like we want to question the advancement. It, yeah. it is, it is, it is strange, but the, the demonization of scientists and because of their academic backgrounds, you know, that's, that's awfully familiar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, expertise. We we don't like experts. <laughs> I thought the other thing that I felt like your book really educated me better on is just how connected the American Communist Party movement was to pro- today's progressive politics and less about what people think communism was in the 50s and 60s. Like there's this, there's sort of, it's almost unfair to label the movement in the thirties, the communist party, it just happened to be the vehicle for progressive politics and the social justice movement. Fair. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't at all uncommon in the 1930s for a university professor like Oppenheimer to sort of become a man of the left. And, uh, you know, capitalism was going through a crisis with the great depression. And so of course he, he contributed to causes sponsored by the Communist Party, like desegregating the public swimming pool in Berkeley, mm-hmm. California, or raising right. money for to send an ambulance to the Spanish Republic in the midst of their civil war. Uh, but there's a great mystery, and Marty and I dug really deep into this question of whether Oppie ever, Oppie was his nickname yeah. to all his students, was whether Oppie ever actually became red and not just pink <laughs> did he actually join the party <laughs> and we think the the definitive evidence is in the fbi files 8000 pages which marty got released yeah. under the freedom of information act but you know the fbi was trying to prove that the they were desperate to find this it seems like yeah. if they had it they would have shown us they they would have shown us and uh but yes he was 
you know, surrounded. Many of his friends were members of the party. Kitty, his wife, was before they met, was a member of the party for many years. And his brother joined the party. And, you know, he, one of his close friends at Berkeley was a CP member. Some way his brother so, was more devoted to the movement than he was. It seems to yes. me. But what you oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is reflected. Yeah. yeah, this is reflected in, in Nolan's film, too. Yeah. And he he ended up, there's a, a, a he ended up teaching, a um, friend of mine shared a story with me about who knew Frank a little bit later. And, and he ended up teaching physics using a junkyard. He would do this. It was some interesting stories somebody <laughs> was telling me. Just sort of like oh, how much he enjoyed teaching physics to young people. And he would, he literally took a class to a junkyard. In order to explain yeah, that sounds like Frank Oppenheimer. You know, he's yeah. the guy who later in the 60s founded the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first sort of science museum that was hands-on to teach kids how to sort of build things and understand science. There's there's sort of there's some questions about Oppenheimer that I have that in some ways have nothing to do with the politics or anything, and really about his own personal life. He seems the movie paints him as an absentee father. Mm-hmm. And and you, I mean, there's certainly family is seems to both matter to him, but he doesn't always prioritize it. Is that fair? I think that's fair. You know, he was uh, a, a father before the era of feminism. Mm-hmm. He uh, was often not there. He let Kitty raise the kids and she was not a great mother. You know, she was wanting to be a biologist, a scientist herself. I'll be honest. I I have a, I have a, my grandmother graduated from college in 1933 from Iowa state university. And she could never, she never had a job and she always wanted a job, but she was born too early. I I identified with her a lot with Kitty on that. She seemed frustrated and and unfortunately my grandmother became an alcoholic. And I think it was the boredom. I've always yeah. thought it was the boredom that did it. And it's implied here with Kitty, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, she's, a, she comes across in the book as a very strong and yet fragile human being who is bored with her, her life, devoted to Oppenheimer. Um, and you know, she's, she's not an unloving mother. She's just, uh, you know, a difficult one. Well, she didn't just want to do that. I mean, I think in fairness to her, right? Like she just, that isn't what made her feel good. She wanted the intellectual uh, stimulation too, it sounded like. Right. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And, you know, she was sort of a high functioning alcoholic at different periods of her life. But during the the 1954 trial, the security hearing, where Mm. Oppenheimer himself sort of fell apart, didn't defend himself. Right said, you know, oh, I was an idiot. And, um, she was put on the witness stand and fought back like a tiger. And again, this is well reflected in the movie. It is. Nolan captures this. So, What's the lesson you want future presidents to take away from the, from, from the story of Oppenheimer? Well, I, I heard last night that President Joe Biden was watching it. He did. He has told the press it was compelling. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) Okay. put that in the movie poster now, Kai, or on the book cover, right? Joe Biden says compelling, you know. 
<laughs> well, I, I hope it reminds people, politicians like Biden, that we should not be complacent about nuclear weapons, that these things are really dangerous and that we need to we have fewer of them than we did at the height of the Cold War, mm-hmm. but we still have too many of them and we should get down to zero. And it has to be negotiated internationally. And this was Oppenheimer's vision to create an international atomic regime that bans the weapons and uses the technology for good purposes. Let me ask you this. You know, he ended up after the, you know, he's the father of the atomic bomb. He's on the, the, the Atomic Commission there for a bit, obviously, and, and of course, the security hearing. In hindsight, I wish all of their energy had been devoted to trying to figure out how to do clean nuclear energy, right? Because this is the holy grail right now. If we we get cold fusion, right? We get clean fusion. It's it's this is the holy grail of, of clean energy. What's your sense of where the focus was? You know why why that wasn't more of a focus back in the forties, late forties and early fifties. Well, it comes back to the politics. You know, we were coming out of World War II. We were coming out of a dozen years of the New Deal and big government. And, you know, there's naturally a, a swing back. And then we went through McCarthyism and this distrust of science and intellectuals and big government. Mm-hmm. And Dwight Eisenhower, uh, not a bad president, a great general, but he was persuaded, unfortunately, of this notion that uh, nuclear weapons are a cheap defense. Mm-hmm. And so he and encouraged the Defense Department to build more of these weapons, thinking that we wouldn't have to spend as much on conventional defense weapons. As, uh, and, that, and, of course, it, this led to a, an arms race. Right. An insane arms race. And, you know, we're now spending a trillion dollars over the next 10 years to modernize our relatively small nuclear arsenal. And we hope never to use. We're modernizing something that we hope to never use. It is a strange way to spend oh, money. You know, three months after Hiroshima, I think it's important for people to remember that the father of the atomic bomb gives a speech in which he says, these are weapons for aggressors. These are weapons of terror. They're not militarily defensive weapons. And he goes on to say they were used in in the first instance on an already virtually defeated enemy. So that's a, a warning. He was trying to get people to wake up to the fact that this is not just any other weapon. I'm going to take a quick break here. Just a moment, we're going to turn to Kai Bird's profile of President Jimmy Carter. Also a little connection to uh, nuclear energy there a little bit and how he relates to Oppenheimer. You're listening to the Chuck Toddcast from Meet the Press. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It's interesting to me that you you, you profiled a president that ha- happened to be a, a nuclear engineer. 
and Jimmy Carter. <laughs> well, Jimmy Carter would advertise that he was a nuclear engineer when he was running for president in 1976. And it's true, he took one, you know, 10 months of courses at the Navy uh, so that he could work on. Well, he knew more about nukes over. than any other president we've had. That's that? true. He did. There we go. <laughs> No, Jimmy Carter's a, a fascinating guy. He's, uh, you know, he. I would argue, I did argue in the book that he is without a doubt the smartest, most intelligent, most best-read president we had in the 20th century. But good, but um, he's, but good intellects are not always good managers. Well, he he actually was a damn good manager. He just wasn't a very good politician. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, uh, you reminded me of my favorite line in, in the movie, in Nolan's movie, when, when, in where they ask him if, you know, you're a politician now. Oppie. That's, that's right. And it, and it was like, yes, like that's it, it. And you do sometimes leaders sometimes have to make a choice to lead your team or get involved in the weeds. And, and. I think there was a lot of questions of whether Oppenheimer would ever be capable of getting out of the weeds. And he was, I think that was what I would argue. Jimmy Carter was somebody that sometimes got stuck in the weeds. Jimmy Carter loved to get up at five 30 in the morning, every morning, get into the oval office by six, six 30. And he'd spend the next 12 hours, not in meetings. He hated meetings. He hated glad handing or but reading, you know, 200, 300 pages of memos every day and writing his own memos and studying an issue and figuring out what was the right thing to do. And, you know, he he actually did a lot. He was a very consequential president. Mm -hmm. He deregulated the airline industry, the trucking industry. Uh, my God, he, he deregulated uh, alcohol in a way that, made it possible a few years down the road for the boutique beer business to That's blossom. right. No, that's funny you bring that up. <laughs> there used to be these really strict laws about who could make yeah. alcohol and make beer and, and what size right. containers you could put them in and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he accomplished a lot and, you know, both domestically and foreign policy. You think of Camp David, what he did for Israel, taking Egypt mm -hmm. off the battlefield in 1978. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. He, you know, the issues that he was dealing with in the 1970s, energy, race, mm -hmm. religion, climate change, solar panels on the White House, healthcare, the revolutionary Iran, um, and Russia, all of these are issues that we're still grappling with. And that Carter had sort of an engineer's kind of commonsensical approach to problem solving. And uh, I think he's looking better and better as a president in retrospect. I do think it's aging well. And, and you bring up an important point. We haven't had any, you know, sort of an engineering mind as president uh, since, right? We've had different, it's a, just a different way right. uh, uh, of thinking and, and, I have a friend of mine who happens to be a nuclear engineer, and it's one of his great frustrations about politicians is that how, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, you know, engineers are um, overly rational, if that's possible to be, right? Almost to the point right. of they don't have emotion, yeah. you know, or it can sound like they don't have emotion. You know, they yeah. do. But, you know, hey, the math is the math, and then we'll get there. 
Um, you know, it's funny. He feels like, like, and he feels like he'll always be an historical outlier because he is, because the background is so different from, frankly, any other presidency. Yeah, no, he was the outlier. That's why I gave the title of the mm-hmm. book that that phrase. Uh, he's an outlier, not only because he was an engineer and a problem solver in a sort of in, in this micro way, but he was a Southern man, a white mm-hmm. Southerner who wins the presidency in the most improbable race, and you know he was. He was very politically astute. He knew how to win power. He knew how to be Look, the way he won seventy. The way he won the governor's race in seventy is nothing to be proud of. Yeah, no, no he I did mean, he dog ran, whistles. He, that's right. He dog whistled it up, <laughs> and he at least admitted it. He did it, and he regretted it, didn't he? Later, yeah, yeah. But he knew how to. Unlike, I think, for instance, the governors of Florida, DeSantis. Mm-hmm who is doing that, he's trying to appeal to this right-wing base, but he's doing it very unintelligently. Carter did it very astutely. And then as soon as he was governor, he immediately moved to the left and started doing the right thing on race and such. And this is what he did in the White House, too. Now, you know, it, I think it's also important to understand that Carter improbably won in 76 with a majority of the black vote, a majority of the white Southern vote. He swept the South, majority of evangelicals. Uh, maybe oh, a yeah, plurality. it's a coalition we'll never see again. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy coalition. Labor unions, uh, right. you know, he, it was – and then just four years later, he loses the, the white male Southern vote. He loses evangelicals by a very lopsided margin, mm-hmm. uh, and he retains only blacks. He even loses the Jewish vote, which is always democratic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and why? Because he was he refused to act like a politician. Mm-hmm. He took his re- religiosity very seriously, and he said, "Now that I have power, I have to study." to figure out what is the right thing to do it, and then I do the right thing. And he alienated all sorts of constituencies as a result. Okay, but it's interesting you say that. I want to mix your two subjects here a minute with Oppenheimer and Carter because their best moments are sometimes moments where they don't think about the politics, but their best moments are when they actually play a little politics. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, Oppenheimer in some ways really was savvy, politically savvier than I think anybody thought he'd be. Right. That's true. And uh, Marty and I, when we were writing the book and particularly writing about the security hearing of 1954, we are so frustrated. We can't understand why Oppie sort of loses his political smarts and doesn't understand that he's being set up. And the he guy becomes so politically naive. The guy that put together the entire team and, and put together New Mexico and put together the whole thing. That's a savvy political player. Yeah. That's not just some engineer, you know, I mean, that's somebody with, with a skill set that I don't think everybody thought he had. Yeah, exactly. No, he, he was most improbable to be selected by general Leslie Groves, but Groves saw that he was, that Oppenheimer was ambitious, 
was really smart, was mm-hmm. a quantum physicist, but he was a polymath. He loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway. And yeah. so he could speak in plain English. And, yeah. uh, you know, Groves valued that. And he, he saw that Oppie was somebody who could become a charismatic leader and so not get s- into the weeds. <laughs> right. right. I guess that's why I go back to Carter, where it feels like that sometimes he stood on ceremony too often. I mean, this was his strength. I mean, Camp right. David would never have happened without his the arrogance of him thinking that he could bring alone Anwar Sadat and Menahem Begin and, and just shuttle back and forth and force these two enemies to sign a piece of paper of peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just never would have happened without his that kind of personal diplomacy. So what you're saying is in some ways what, what allowed that to happen – then at the same time, you know, he wouldn't have accomplished that without being stubborn, without sort of not, right. you know. Right. Um, but but then again, it also, not like anybody, their gift can un- sometimes undo you. Also yeah. be a, yeah. a burden. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's a very human story. <laughs> when you watch this presidential race of people not named Trump, who is the most interesting person you'd want to, you'd think that you'd might want to embed with and, and do the biography of like, who do you oh. see as a rich character? <laughs> I'm, I'm essentially doing Trump by looking at the life of Roy Cohn. And I think that will explain Trump. Um, I, actually, I don't know. You know, Biden is, is a very interesting politician. He's very similar to Carter. I agree. He he pays attention to detail. He's steady, stubborn, uh, uh, a little, you know, egotistical, I'm sure, like any politician. And, you know, he he and Carter go back a long ways. They come out of the same sort of. They're more. I was just going to say he has more in common with Carter. (laughs) Biden does than either Obama or Clinton. No, absolutely. To get back to your question, I don't see really any other interesting politicians who yeah, they're not rich have gravitas or yeah. intelligence or are complex. They all seem to be s- stick wooden figures who are just reading their lives. By numbers. <laughs> I get a little frustrated with our current situation. I'm like, God, everything's so paint by numbers now. There's no well, subtlety. The, there's yeah. no nuance. They, yeah. There's no, um, this is the frustration that I think whether you're, right or left that mm-hmm. voters have with the candidates they're being offered. They don't see anyone like Carter who just can come out of nowhere and uh, seem determined and intelligent. And uh, it's just, I will give you one person that I would tell you, if you spent some time with him, you would probably find him interesting. And, it, and it's the governor of North Dakota. He's the, of all the guys running so far that I've met, he's the most interesting. He's got the most depth. He is the most intriguing background. He did something before he got into politics. He started a software company. He was company a and, businessman, yeah. right? Yeah. I can't even. He, I can't even recall a, his name though. Doug Burgum is his name. He ran a grain <laughs> okay. elevator business, okay. you know, for the family, and then turned it. My point is, of all the guys running, he might be the most rich character if you were to. I see. All it's right. an intrigue. He's he's at least, and he seems to what I call you know. My problem now is so many of these people are just not three-dimensional figures it's not that we don't make them three-dimensional they don't make them they don't make themselves three-dimensional right uh he he feels a little more three-dimensional than anybody else for what it's worth but of course i always joke when i like a candidate they're guaranteed to be one (laughs) percent right 
Well, I anyway. think you're you're right. People are looking for authenticity and some kind of integrity. And uh, flip floppers are, you know, the worst. And I think we want an optimist too, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, you always want an optimist in America. That's, I always thought that was another problem Carter had sometimes. He was too truthful. Yep. Oh, absolutely. He was willing to bring bad I, news. That's the engineer in him. That's the, like, well, and, you just deal with it, you know? Well, it's also the the sort of Southern Baptist in him. He, you know, remember that famous malaise speech that didn't right, where he never actually the use the word malaise, right. but it was all about malaise. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he 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 really he took his religion seriously, and he looked at America in 1979 and said, "You know, we're we're too materialistic, and where is our sense of community? And it's all about the individual, but not the community." And that was and, 1979. You know, <laughs> that was 79, and you know, it was he was defeated. I can't emphasize this enough. He was defeated because of race. And after all, he was a Southern white man, a Southern Baptist, and he was just doing too much. He, you know, he had appointed too many African Americans to the federal civil service, to the federal judiciary, and he did things like refusing to give tax exempt status to, you know, these. Christian academies that popped mm-hmm. up all over the country in response to the integration of public schools. Mm-hmm. And this was just like this angered and set off a, a backlash among s- s- largely Southern white voters, well, but it birthed white voters sort of, all over. It bur- you could argue that it, that this, what is turning, what, where if you believe evangelical Christianity is turning into Christian nationalism, in some ways, it's where it was birthed, right? yeah. where that movement was birthed a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, Carter ha- has been forced to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. He's no longer part of it. He he was, well, until he went into hospice, he was still going to a church, but it was yeah. a church of one <laughs> Yeah, in, in Plains, Georgia. Well, Russell Moore also, I think, had to leave, too. He's now, at a, you know, but yeah, there, there are a few few people who are truly still believe who are trying to rescue the the movement, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to it. Well, I think we're going to look back on Jimmy Carter and uh, as the decades roll by, he'll look more and more prophetic. Do you put him, by the way, I was thinking about this. There's something about Nixon that feels like the end of one chapter and that we're, that Carter begins a chapter in American history and American and the American presidency that actually we're still, we're still in. Do you believe that? Well, in the sense that uh, Nixon's humiliation and the scandal of Watergate really brought an end, together with the Vietnam War, to the establishment, to this sort of bipartisan, Republican, Democratic foreign policy establishment. Foreign policy establishment, but it was also a domestic establishment of lawyers like John McCloy, who was the subject of my first biography called Mm -hmm. The Chairman. And, you know, I started that book thinking that, you know, I was writing from a critique of the establishment from the left, that they were too elitist. And yet, as the decades rolled by, you know, uh, 
we now look back at at and I suddenly realized that that establishment was you know they made mistakes they were elitist but at least they weren't you know uh they weren't liars and uh they they were honorable men trying to do they weren't the right all cla- thing. they weren't looking at it to get rich right right they they were they, they had this notion of public service and you know it was it was a little elitist and and hypocritical at times and they made enormous mistakes like they got us into vietnam mm-hmm. um they prolonged the cold war i would argue but y- you know i i suddenly the reason i'm doing roy Cohn now is mm-hmm. that in all of my books roy Cohn made appearances in a, a paragraph or mm-hmm. a couple of paragraphs in my biography of john mccloy in my biography of mcgeorge bundy in Jimmy Carter, he mm-hmm. actually has several pages. Um, he even makes an appearance in Oppenheimer uh, because he was trying to subpoena Oppenheimer on behalf of Joe McCarthy, Joe McCarthy and he had to be right, warned yeah. off by, by Eisenhower. And suddenly I realized, you know, my portrait of Roy Cohn in, in all those books was, I got it wrong. I portrayed him as a nefarious, but annoying, but, really inconsequential figure. And yet all these many decades later, the politics and the values culturally and politically of the establishment are dead. All that bipartisanship is gone. And what we have in our, its place is the, the politics and personal ethics of uh, a lawyer like Roy Cohn. And it's, that's the real tragedy of this country over the last 50 years. You really worry that, you know, it's it sort of, we go a wrong direction here. And, you know, when you lose a democracy, it goes from democracy to sort of a kleptocracy before it goes to full authoritarianism. There's always this like transition a little bit, right? And it feels like that that's, that's really what he is like this kleptocracy mindset. You know, I'm going to use government to reorder my life, your life, you know, maybe get rich, whatever it is. Yeah. Transactional politics. Yeah. This is, this is, this is what's going to be on the ballot. Um, I think in, uh, in 2024. Uh, well, Kai, this is, uh, I could, you're one of these people I could talk to forever. Um, but I have to put a time limit on here. So (laughs) thank you for having me. And and you've got a lot of Roy Cohn research to do. I do. Um, I got to get back to the archives. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, this was great. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Chuck Toddcast from Meet the Press. Today's episode was produced by Justice Gopin Green, Elias Miller, and Olivia Yang. Theme music composed by Spoke Media. Meet the Press Now is live every day at 4 p.m. Eastern on NBC News Now. You can find that anywhere by searching for NBC News Now. Big show airs on Sunday morning on your local NBC station. Thanks for listening, and until we upload again. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.